Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend. Coming up, Courtney Barnett tells us about her extreme vulnerability in the new documentary, Anonymous Club. I almost like think that being able to find and like accept joy is like cooler and tougher and harder. But first, it's our chance to sit back, relax, and unwind from another hell of a week with two excellent humans. With us this week, we have Saeed Jones. His new poetry collection, Alive at the End of the World, comes out on September 13th. Saeed, welcome. Hello, my dear. Hi. Oh, my gosh. So glad to have you. We also have one of Saeed's co-hosts on the new podcast, Vibe Check, and the host of the new Vulture podcast, Into It, Sam Sanders. Sam, hello. Hey. It is so good to be here with both of you. If I recall uh-huh. correctly, Greta, the last time we hung out was in a kind of dive bar in Chicago after a WBEZ gala. Yes, I was going to say a definite dive bar. Yes. Oh, I'm jealous. That sounds so fun. It was delightful. (laughs) So I think we should start with the student loan situation. This is a big story and it's a really long time coming. President Biden announced earlier this week that he will cancel $10,000 in student loan debts for anybody who makes less than $125,000 a year. Pell Grant recipients can get $20,000 canceled. The COVID-related repayment suspension was extended until the end of the year. There's also some reformulation of income-driven repayment plans, which could be a game changer for a lot of people. Of course, this is all for federal loans. Um, Sam, I would love to hear your perspective on this one. It feels a little bit like it's too little too late, but what's your take? Yeah, I think that we have to understand that this means different things for different people. Mm -hmm. And it's important to, in the midst of all the figuring out who gets what, to know that for some people this is a very big deal. And I've seen a lot of the left on the Internet today say it's not enough, it's not everything, but something Mm -hmm. is something. And the communities that this debt forgiveness most reaches uh, is people of color. You know, this Mm -hmm. primarily reaches people who have only undergraduate debt. Those are more often people of color. And so I don't know. It's like it's not everything. It's kind of mediocre. But I want to celebrate those people who get to breathe a sigh of relief today and say, you know, Joe Biden never overwhelms, but he whelmed. So fine. Fine. That's true. We One thing we'll never have to worry about with Joe, Joe Biden is overwhelmed. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I would, you know, of course, I would prefer to have heard about total uh, student loan debt forgiveness. But I'm mm-hmm. trying to think of this as um, a first step because my sense is you're right. This is significant for, for a great deal of people. I hope what happens is that we're able to get data and, and both yeah. anecdotal and, you know, analytical data that shows how this like 
measurably improves people's lives, right? Black people's lives, black women's lives. Like this is like this is a big deal for them. Yeah, and I hope that it leads to the next step where they go, oh wow, look at a positive impact this had on people's lives and probably the economy, and thus they go all the way. That's what I'm hoping for. That's what that's what we should push for. Yeah, and I think it's important to realize. How much the terms of this debate have shifted over the last three or four years? Mm, true. Five years ago, yeah. ten years ago, you would have never heard anybody of either party saying, maybe we should forgive student loan debt. And now it's being forgiven through executive order without Congress by a Democratic president. That is a big shift. And it's, you know, Democrats, they love to snatch victory from the hands of victory. They refuse <laughs> to acknowledge how big of a deal this is. It's actually a big deal. It's yeah. a big deal. Yeah. 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 That's a fair point. Well, and the way you say something is something, too. It reminds me of something my friend's therapist said to him, which is better is better, Ooh. which is something that I find exactly. myself thinking about a lot. Because, you know, better. like. It's not perfect, but okay, you know, if it's still better, it's better. To quote the great Whitney Houston, (laughs) it's not right, but it's okay. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, I want to talk about a couple of COVID-adjacent news things that happened this week that I thought were really interesting. For one, Anthony Fauci announced he's going to retire from being the White House chief medical advisor at the end of the year. At the same time, Zoom stock is tanking because not as many companies are thank paying God. for thank video God. conferencing. Thank God. Software. Thank God. This is thank the point God. where I feel like we should say we are currently speaking on Zoom. Begrudgingly. Off. Begrudgingly. With our cameras <laughs> off because we are tired. Um, but I mean, you know, this whole thing is it's presumably because more and more people are actually going into work and relying less on. Nah, you know, I'm not going into work. <laughs> I still don't like Zoom. <laughs> Okay, well, I don't know. I feel like in both of these instances, there are sort of these signs that are like pointing to the idea of COVID being over, except for the fact that a great many people still have COVID. Obviously, this is not the first like pandemic ambiguity that we have found ourselves in over the last two and a half years. But I was just really curious how y'all are navigating it at this specific moment. Saeed, what do you think? Um, I don't know. We're still in a pandemic. Um, there are people whose lives are just being impacted in such a severe way on the daily by the way our government's just like, y'all will figure it out, it's right? Fine. Yeah. yeah. It, so I guess it's almost like – it almost feels like survivors – I don't know. I, I, I don't mm. have quite the language for it and it feels arrogant. But um, it's strange because, you know, in terms of my career, like it's getting to the point where like you're right, like virtual book events are becoming less common. Like the mm-hmm. the assumption is that you're going to show up and and travel and do all of that. And it is great to be with people again, yes, you know, yes, but yes. Um, I can't help but look over my shoulder. Yeah, mm, That's a good way of putting it. What do you think, Sam? You know, I work uh, with several colleagues who have small children. And what I realized watching them live that life was that, like, at a certain point, the kids got to go back to school. We got to go back outside because as human beings, we can't do that level of isolation and solitude forever. We just can't. Right. So this moment was going to hit us at a certain point. And now I'm in this situation where I've gotten COVID before, I've gotten my boosters, I feel okay, but all I can do now is be as conscientious as possible, wear my mask indoors, respect those who are immunocompromised, and kind of treat living with the risk of COVID as I do driving in Los Angeles. 
Driving mm. in Los Angeles was actually quite dangerous. In the first several months of this year, I want to say a thousand people were killed in traffic accidents somewhere in L.A. County. The number's oh. always high. Oh but you know what I do? I try to obey the speed limit. I try to not drive drunk. And I wear a seatbelt. And right now at this point, masks for me are the same thing as a seatbelt. Wear it. It's the nice thing to do. So it's just, you know, being aware of the risk, doing what I can with the risk. But like living a life, we have to we have to live a life. Sam, that's such a fascinating metaphor, though, because obeying the speed limit and not driving drunk and wearing seatbelt are all laws. Ooh. That part. Well, <laughs> that, there you go. No, I hear that. Damn. And like, right? this, is why, you know? this is why yeah. I feel some kind of way seeing someone yeah. like Dr. Fauci step down this week. The people who had the know-how and the cojones to do things like mask mandates, it seems like they are harder and harder to find. And also, can we, can we, and I'm going to try not to curse. I'm going to try. Oh, But curse. I cannot. Okay, go let's talk about it. this bitch for a second. Because let's, let's. <laughs> Let's set it honestly, and I know this is a wild, this is a wild, but let's set COVID aside for a second. Here's my Mm -hmm. issue with Dr. Anthony Fauci. Tell me. He was playing a pivotal role at the CDC and the FDA in our government dealing with public health during the early years of the HIV AIDS crisis. Oh, yeah. Well documented. Right? Yeah. And and Mm -hmm. activists, you know, often like groups like ACT UP, Queer Nation, had to agitate and become a pain in his ass Mm -hmm. to get any of the important gains that gay people were able to get in the 80s in terms of receiving treatment, getting medication, all that. Like, it was begrudging. And the reason I bring this up is that here we are, he's getting ready to retire at the end of this year let's set aside COVID for a second monkeypox i know another outbreak right that disproportionately impacts queer men in particular and it's like what have you learned i i I remember you know early in the covid outbreak being kind of surprised because it felt like lessons from hiv aids were not being applied and then Mm -hmm. here we are with an even more direct parallel it makes me so angry i'm like yeah you do need to retire here's the thing though i find the story of anthony fauci and the AIDS HIV crisis and those activists very interesting because the story of Fauci and HIV AIDS is a story of activists winning. Uh, there's a really mm-hmm. good uh, piece in Slate this week about Fauci stepping down. It's from Slate's Tim Requarth. And they quote Larry Kramer saying, at first with HIV AIDS, Fauci was literally, quote, public enemy number one. And at one point, uh, they crashed his office. And they were so loud for so long. Eventually, Fauci invited members of the activist group to serve on committees in the government. Mm. He opened the door for us and let us in, Kramer said. And then they would go on to have weekly dinners where Fauci would host AIDS HIV activists at the home of one of his gay staffers. And so Hmm. I think the lesson of Fauci as he leaves is that like we really shouldn't put any one public health leader on a pedestal, but we should understand where they fit in these complex systems and structures. And for those of us on the margins, on the outside, we should never be afraid to yell at them to get what we need. Thank you for that nuance, because I've just been mad. No, Fauci is quite complicated. Fauci is quite complicated. And what's what's really interesting to me about the last phase of Fauci's career during the COVID crisis, what was basically going on for a while during the first few months of COVID was that Fauci was fibbing to us benevolently. Mm. Dr. Fauci downplayed the value of masking, and we came to find out he was doing that so there would be enough masks for healthcare workers. It's like 
strategic withholding of information. Yeah. Yes, but in this era of over-information, what we need most is transparency, not this idea yes. that like social scientists and government officials can just nudge us to the right behavior. No. <laughs> Show us your work. Show us your yeah. work. Show us what you know. And so, I don't know, for me now, watching Fauci step down, I'm just trying to say to myself, what lessons can we learn from his successes and his missteps? Yeah, yeah. So another really big, really interesting story that made the rounds this week is about the idea of quiet quitting. It seems like this probably was coined by Zayad Khan on TikTok. And uh, they define it by saying you are still performing your duties, but you are no longer subscribing to the hustle culture mentality that work has to be our life. Um, First of all, I think that's not quiet quitting. I think that's just like doing doing your your job. job. (laughs) Man, capitalism has worked a number on us. The fact that we have to have another term that shames us for doing our job. Wow. wow. Yeah. And it has the word quitting in it? Like, that's not quit. Insane. That's literally not quitting. I, and I saw someone say, like, actually, a more productive framing would be acting your wage. Um, yes. but, but also, but to go beyond this, my first reaction was like, well, don't snitch on people. Like, if you're, <laughs> like my first thought was like, well, who, why would you go around bragging about, like, shut up, mind your, like, the entire, like, if Head it's down. going to work, <laughs> you don't want to, like, draw focus. You don't want to be, you know what I mean? Like, I was yeah. just like, I don't know. Cause a lot of this, I was like, are you quite quitting or are you just, you know, following in the tradition of white mediocrity? Mm. Um, because, <laughs> Or just aging. You know, it's funny when I like the people who I see talking about, oh, I have to quiet quit now. Some of this is just like you moving to a different phase of your career. Or just surviving during a really intense time in the world, right? But like I can think back to my 20s. My job was everything for me. And I thought if I just got this milestone, this thing, my life would be perfect. And then I got into my 30s and I got a little bit older and my life got a little bit fuller and I wanted other things. Mm -hmm. Something a mentor told me years ago that has stuck with me forever is that, like, the company cannot hug you back. It's Mm -hmm. not a person. And so when I think of quiet quitting, when I think of, like, what we owe our jobs, I think we owe our jobs what our job gives us back. Besides that, go live a life. Go live a life. I'm also interested in like what this looks like for people working jobs. And I say this as someone who taught high school and college, for example. Hmm. Go up to a middle school teacher and say, like, are you quiet? Quit. You know what I mean? Like jobs where, you know, a a sense of mission is a part um, of of what you're – nursing, being a doctor, you know, caregiving. I mean, you know, there are a lot of jobs where it feels like – that's not really even a, a metric or a way. You know what I mean? Because it's not well, just shift work, too. So it's right. just totally different, well, you know. And we're seeing this economic climate where the people doing that physical labor, that direct labor, that shift work, their wages have remained stagnant now for decades. And executives who yes. push papers around, right. move oh money God. around, have seen their incomes yeah. astronomically inflate. So to yes. see this debate around quiet quitting happen while the people who actually do the work that keeps America going don't see their wages go up. I'm insulted by the term itself, and I'm insulted that so many major news outlets even thought this was a debate. I was offended when I kept seeing think pieces about what is quiet quitting surface, because like quiet quitting is a lie, a scam, a fraudulent (laughs) abuse of late capitalism. Like, ugh, call it out. Yeah. (laughs) 
And it's interesting, too, I mean, because it does, it feels like kind of removed from how a lot of this actually plays out. Here in Columbus, it's um, for for kids, it's the first week back at school. Um, but Columbus public school teachers are actually on strike now. Oh, that's right. Because of contract negotiations for all the reasons Sam just pointed out. I mean, yeah. gosh, to be an educator these last mm-hmm. few years has been, I mean, tr- you talk about superheroes, honey. Oh, my God. Um, and everything yeah. they've had to deal with. And, and they're being asked to do more and more with less and less compensation and support and so i told i'm like right on you know for you striking and but it's such a difficult decision because again i mean it's not so easy when basically you're being asked to like look at your students and be like am i gonna give less you know Mm -hmm. um so i just i i'm really i've been thinking about them a lot because i think educators in particular are are often caught in this rock in a hard place where negotiating for what you deserve and frankly what you need to just like support yourself often is used um kind of against you you um when when you're trying to you know negotiate yeah well and like just i mean like when you think of the plight of public school teachers most of them are buying school supplies for their children and a lot of them have to have other second summer jobs to fill in the gaps of their employment so like don't you tell mrs bennett teaching the third graders that she's quiet quitting she's literally doing five jobs Mm -hmm. for too little pay for sure anywho don't get me started I actually had a teacher named Miss Bennett, girl, my third grade it. teacher. We're in, it, we're in it. We're in it. Well, on that note, I wish both of you strong boundaries and beautiful Oh, they're there. Listen, I'm ta- <laughs> I am taping this conversation uh, in the bedroom, half-dressed, not showered yet for the day. <laughs> Seriously, though, Saeed, Sam, thank you both so much. This was such a treat. Thanks for having me. Loved it. Love talking with you, Greta. In just a minute, I talk with musician Courtney Barnett about the intensely vulnerable new documentary about her. It's called Anonymous Club. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Singer-songwriter Courtney Barnett is no stranger to big feelings. After all, one of her earliest hits was about a panic attack. All of a sudden, I'm having trouble breathing in. I'm having trouble breathing in. Another song on her second full-length album is literally called Crippling Self-Doubt and a General Lack of Confidence. In 2018, Courtney was touring for that album. It was called Tell Me How You Really Feel. And her friend and collaborator, Danny Cohen, gave her a tape recorder that she could dictate her thoughts into, like an audio diary. 
Those recordings have since become Anonymous Club, a documentary by Danny that shows Courtney being a rock star while also muddling through a super heavy emotional state. I wake up having one of those, like, just feeling sad days. I think sometimes it's just okay to feel sad and keep on going with what you're doing. The journey is understanding what the purpose is. I think everyone struggles with that journey. She questions her self-worth. She struggles with imposter syndrome. She has to deal with intrusive questions from reporters. There's even this great moment where she asks if she has boogers in her nose before she goes on stage. It's a really raw look at an artist grappling with herself and learning how to find joy on the other side. And she is here to talk to me about it. Courtney, hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. Obviously, in your songs, you are already very vulnerable. But I don't, I felt like in this film, you're really exposing yourself. Why... Why did you do that? Why did you decide you wanted to? <laughs> this is a great question. Um, <laughs> what the hell, Courtney? <laughs> <laughs> I know. You know, first of all, I, I really trust Danny Cohen, who's the director mm-hmm. and who's my friend. And I think we kind of both shared so much with each other, just our, our kind of journey as friends and as people making art together. Um When I'm in like a place where I feel comfortable, I guess I do feel comfortable to open up. And when I'm asked a question, I I kind of, it's this annoying thing I have where I like can't not answer it. Hmm. <laughs> On top of that, I think the other part is that part of me kind of thought this film would never happen. <laughs> so I kind of was like, well, I'll just go along with this project and this idea and we probably won't use half of this dictaphone or, you know, Danny will want me to redo it in a better like narration style way. But he didn't because he obviously heard something that he thought was really real. And, um, you know, he decided to use that, which at first was incredibly terrifying to me and still kind of is. But in hindsight, Mm. it allowed something real to come out of it. Yeah, I mean, it's real and it's beautiful. Yeah. What's it like to watch the film now? I haven't, like, I watched it when it, um, when we launched it in um, Australia, which was the first time Danny and I watched it in a film, in a, in a cinema with other people. In a room with other people watching it. That sounds yeah. potentially excruciating. You know, it was confronting to watch it, I guess. Um, but I think, I think I learned a lot about myself. And after that night, we both were like, okay, we've done it. Congratulations. We don't ever need to watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. That yeah. makes total sense. Yeah. What what has feedback been like? I mean, I I imagine, I don't know, I should hope that it's a validating process to be this vulnerable and share it with the world and have people say, "Oh my god, I can totally relate to what you're dealing with here." Yeah, it's been um it's been really nice. Like when it launched in Australia, I was also doing shows at the same time and people mm came up to me in the street and they're like, we just saw your film. And like that never, that hardly ever happens to me as a musician. (laughs) Um, Mm. So yeah, it was just this really beautiful and thing. And I've had a few really, yeah, just really meaningful interactions with people and strangers and just telling me what it, what it meant to them. And, you know, that, that means a lot to me. Yeah, that's huge. That reminds me of something you 
talk about in the film. To be completely honest, I just feel like I've kind of let myself down somehow with the release of this album. I, you know, what could have been a fantastic conversation around fragility and, and depression and mental health. It just ended up kind of being swept to the side because I was too scared to talk about anything real or heavy. Do you think that in some ways maybe this film was, you know, a way to, a way to do that? Yeah, I, I guess so. I think, um, and you know, like even listening back to that comment that I made, it's like so incredibly hard on myself and mm-hmm. such like, mm-hmm. you know, unrealistic, like high expectations. And um, yeah, it's just like, I think now looking back, it's like, oh, you could afford to be a little bit kinder to yourself. and sometimes things just like take time to unfold in a way that, you know, is meaningful or that makes sense. And I mean, Mm -hmm. that's, I guess that was a journey of the next album and which ended up being the end of the film in a way, like Mm -hmm. allowing that space and that time for things to kind of happen naturally. Speaking of being really hard on yourself, you talk a lot about imposter syndrome too. Going through those motions and playing the songs and then, Um, just having this whole other narrative running in my head about how everyone, you know, is standing still and thinks I'm a big joke and talentless. Do you think your relationship with that has changed since the doc has filmed? Yeah. You know, it feels like such a common thing. But, yeah, I I think... I think it's something that like we have to work on that I have to work on all the time. Even the other night I had a show where I I've kind of been going fine. And then I had this real imposter syndrome moment and it just like came out of nowhere and like totally freaked me out on stage. And I just, you know, but sometimes it just happens. <laughs> I don't know what, yeah. you know, what sparks it or like where it comes from, but I think it's like, that reminded me that I think recently I've been like, oh, I'm so like, I'm doing good. I'm like keeping healthy and like I'm meditating and like I'm doing all this like good stuff to be in a good headspace. And then like that happens and it's like, oh no, you just, you constantly need to be working on yourself. Ignore that voice. It puts you down. I feel like for me, I have this exquisite spiral around like feeling bad for feeling bad. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where it's like, not only are you having a hard time, but then the like, what's wrong with me that I can't just, you know, fill in the blank is just like so intense sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big one. I think that comparing ourselves to others in ways of like success, but then also comparing ourselves in like, oh, I don't deserve to be feeling this bad. Right. There's such a mythology around mental illness and creativity that made me wonder, like, do you think of some of your 
I don't know, call it anguish, call it whatever. Like, do you think that's part of the creative process for you? Yeah, I think um, there's a fine line between like romanticizing something versus just like accepting that, yeah, life is full of ups and downs and figuring out how to coexist with it. Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, like I always think of that Leonard Cohen lyric, um, there's a crack in everything and that's how the light gets in Mm -hmm. or something along those lines. I love that. But yeah, it's like, I'm careful not to romanticize it. Like you don't need it, but I think it's important to be able to like study those parts of yourself. Yeah. And and how they coexist. Celebrating imperfection Mm. while still like also striving for growth or whatever. Yeah, totally. So what's your relationship like with your brain these days? Pretty good. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, you know, like I mentioned before, like I have little moments that pop up here and there, but I think that's just perfectly natural. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard, but like there's a bunch of horrific shit out there all the time. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's really like, I almost like think that like, being able to find and like accept joy is like tougher, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's it like is. cooler and tougher and harder yeah. to do. And then like, I really, really appreciate it. And I'm so grateful for like all the good things in the world. Cause there are so many good things, but yeah, I don't like ignore the bad things. It's just kind of like, how do you bring it all together without letting one outweigh the other. Courtney, thank you very much for chatting with me. This was a real pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. It was a really nice chat. that's it for this week thanks for listening as always we did announce this in last week's newsletter but i see why am i i wanted to make sure that all of y'all know we will be back with book club starting in september our selection is gabrielle zevin's tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow it is excellent check out the spoiler free author interview that'll drop the first tuesday of september and then come back for the discussion on the last tuesday of the month Of course, it is never too soon to share your thoughts about the book if you've already read it. We would love to know what you thought of it. Just record yourself on your phone and email the file to nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. Shout out to Ashley, who has already done exactly that. Maggie Civet builds our newsletter every week. You can sign up for that newsletter if you go to wbez.org slash nerdatteaf. The show is produced by me and Anna Bauman. Our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak. We will see you next week. Wait, I was ready to also talk about movie pass. <laughs> Girl, what's there to say? <laughs> ain't nothing to say, Sam. <laughs> Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. 
Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.